Today I have with me Dr. Don Teeter and Martha Teeter. This is the second interview with them, so please go view the first one to get more information on them and how I first met Don. Don and Martha together have years of experience with treating those with addictions. And in addition to having their own private practice, they travel all over the country working to improve pain treatment and reduce opioid misuse through policy development, prescriber training, and improving healthcare delivery. Before meeting Don, I had often wondered why, for me, when I took an opioid, you know, after a dental procedure or some sort of procedure, there was no euphoric effect. And in fact, it usually felt like most of the time there was no effect at all. For me, that was a good thing, of course, especially in my line of work as a pharmacist, having access to all kinds of controlled substances. I just, I couldn't understand addiction starting with a prescription, post-trauma or anything. And that is what we're gonna talk about today trauma and predisposition to pain and addiction. So if you could start by defining uh, trauma, what is trauma? You know, Don, I think I should take part and you should take part. Okay. Okay, so I work mainly with people who have emotional trauma and that's a really significant factor in who's going to develop a problem with chronic pain or with any kind of use disorder. So when I think about trauma, I'm thinking about childhood trauma, ongoing trauma, things like that. Um, Don would probably be thinking of trauma often in a different way, but factoring in what I just mentioned. So. Yeah, so first of all, now my understanding is better along what Martha said about the emotional aspect, and we'll talk a little bit why that's important later. But if you do talk to medical people or your doctor, Commonly, we think of trauma as this physical trauma, right? This, this, whatever it is that caused the injury itself as the trauma and, and the physical aspect of it instead of the emotional and the behavioral aspects of it. So oftentimes the behavioral health field and the medical field have these different definitions. And when I talk to medical people, I have to make that very clear that when we're talking about trauma, we're talking about really the, the impact that the emotion of it has on people. That makes perfect sense. So there's those are general examples of different types of trauma. Can we can you tell us a little bit more about I think maybe a lot of people listening to this interview are in the medical field and have a pretty good idea of the whole medical trauma piece of it. What about some childhood experiences that would create that trauma? Well, a lot of what we do in behavioral health is we're looking at people's background and what kind of trauma load they bring into adulthood. And a lot of people are using the Adverse Childhood Experiences um, screening tool. It's 10 questions. It was, the study was published over 20 years ago, 23 years ago, I think. So this has been around for a long time and it's a well-established tool to use. It's just 10 questions. So then you come out with a score of zero to 10 on how much childhood trauma you have. And we find that a score of four or higher really raises risk of negative outcomes. And many of our people, I don't know, Don, if you even know in the programs you're working with what their average score is at intake. Do you know that? No, but I could make an estimate. I would guess uh, both in Alaska and North Carolina where I work, because we do them on, on our patients in both practices, probably the average score is close to six or so. Yeah. And that's a significant score. And, you know, unless you know and have worked with people with a trauma history, 
you know, maybe it doesn't mean much. It sounds kind of abstract, but in real life, these are the folks who've had maybe sexual, emotional abuse or neglect in childhood. They've had difficulties, maybe sexual assault, any number of things, a parent being in prison, um, parental absence, all kinds of things. But so we use that a lot and most people are now. It's a really good screening tool. And I think it really helps us get a sense of where people have been. You know, you just, you really need to have an understanding of their background in that way. I think the older I get and the more I become exposed to different people in life and people trying to heal from things, I almost wonder if it's possible for any of us to get through life without a trauma score of, of some sort. I mean, I think we probably all have something. The term you use, trauma load, I had not heard that. Um, that's an interesting term and that really kind of summarizes, I think, the whole thing is that trauma load. It's kind of mm -hmm. sad, actually. Um, so how does a trauma score of four and above especially increase the risk of addiction? And does it also increase the risk of chronic pain as well? So it does. And, and I will clarify, we know people four and above have a really high risk of chronic pain and addiction. But even if you have a, a, a score of one as from childhood, mm -hmm. that doubles your risk of using IV drugs later. It doubles your risk of developing pain later. So even a score of one is significant. What we know is that uh, and anybody exposed to this kind of trauma, and in particular, when we're talking about childhood, um, you know, these kids ha have this exposure where they're always kind of on edge, they're always on guard because they don't know what's gonna happen. You say they have an abusive parent. They're always nervous, they're always scared and their adrenaline levels are always going high. And this kind of reaction actually changes their brain. It changes their central nervous system, how it works. So as they get older, they have more anxiety, they have more depression. Uh, they actually have damage to certain areas of their brain uh, one is the amygdala, which is the anxiety center. One is their hippocampus, which kind of retains memories and, and brings back memories of, of these bad things that happened in childhood, uh, even to the connection to their prefrontal cortex. So they don't make decisions quite as well. So these, this damage occurs from this ongoing adrenaline and cortisol levels that they have as a child, and it persists into adulthood. And these are the same areas of the brain that are affected by addiction. And so if they do take an opioid pill, immediately it calms all that down. It gives them this calming feeling they haven't felt before. And that is very reinforcing. So, you know, many of my patients, I can't tell you how many times I've heard a story like this. They'll say, uh, you know, I grew up in a household where our father abused us and I, he beat me, he beat my sister, he beat my mom, and I was scared to death at home. But school wasn't an escape for me because I didn't do well in school either. I struggled there, I got in trouble. So I dropped out in 10th grade. I got pregnant a year later, two years later, I had another kid. Now I'm a single parent, have two kids, raising them by myself, can only get a minimum wage job, can't pay the bills, the kids are difficult, sprained my ankle, doctor gave me Percocet, and all of a sudden I had this wonderful calm feeling that I had never felt in my life. And so that's one way that they are different from those of us that didn't get that. So I didn't get this feeling either with opioids, but I never had all this trauma in my, my background, and I'm generally a pretty calm person. Uh, so, you know, I take it and, can't calm me down much more than, than I already am. Um, but these other folks, it completely changes their life almost. They take that first pill. So that trauma, and, and even an adult trauma, it does the same thing. So you think of PTSD, our soldiers in the battlefield that have a severe wartime injury. Again, their adrenaline and cortisol levels go to these huge levels and they go high enough that it causes brain damage in these areas. 
And so they're always anxious afterwards. They always have these flashbacks because they can't retain those memories. They can't suppress those memories. And opioids calm them down right away. And so many people with PTSD are much more susceptible to becoming addicted to opioids. Hmm. And so trauma has a big role in that. I will also put in there that, that you can have a genetic predisposition also. You can inherit kind of this feeling where the opioids make you feel really well, really good as well. Interesting. Yeah, Don, that's. Do you think I should share a couple personal examples? You want me to share some personal examples? Um, um, which ones you're talking about? Our granddaughters. So Go ahead. Three, three young granddaughters, two of them were adopted and they had tra trauma in their background. They're now six and three. And um, you can see the difference between them and our biological grandchild, grandchild who has a zero A score at this point in her young life. But it affects growth, it affects mm. emotional regulation, impulsivity, judgment, even at this young age where they are now. So, you know, those are kids who will be at higher risk because they have that, all the stuff he identified with the trauma. We also have a dog that was a rescue and she's on Prozac because. <laughs> She had trauma, we're assuming, and couldn't interact and attach with us in a normal way. So it affects people and dogs sometimes, but um, the trauma really is significant. And a lot of these people are in situations where they have ongoing trauma. There might be domestic violence. There might be other traumas that they're experiencing, um, other ways that they're really suffering now. And it's a relief. And you take a medication like that, and for those people, it makes them feel better. That's fascinating. And that's a good educational piece. Our first interview that we did, we talked about stigma and to understand that that is also going on inside of the person um, potentially that is now addicted kind of helps with that stigma piece of it too. And the judgment, you know, don't judge. Um, yeah. And there's a, a big movement now toward trauma informed care which is where we try and create organizations and agencies and facilities where they have an understanding of trauma and how that impacts people. So, you know, the, the gist of trauma-informed care is that instead of saying, what is wrong with this person? Mm -hmm. We say, what happened to this person? Right, right. You know, what's story? What are they bringing in? You know, right. there may be reasons that help explain their behavior or their issues. And once you understand that they have a certain amount of trauma, you can understand them differently and have more compassion. And once you understand that, is there anything that we can can do about it? The the trauma piece of it, and I don't know, somehow changing that so that there's improvements with that when it comes to being rolled up with chronic pain and addiction. Well, I'll make a comment, and then I'll I'm sure Don has something to say, but. Um, you know, I really think that when we treat these folks with compassion and respect and like we like them and we're glad to see them and we're going to walk with them through this and we're always there at their appointment time, we're always kind to them, we are respectful. You know, I think that really matters because a lot of these folks, they would come early to their appointments and I think, who has time to do that? But they liked the quiet of the waiting room. It was nice mm -hmm. and light and had current magazines and they liked being away from all of the crud in their life. So I think that um, the way we treat people can have a really big influence. And, you know, Don still sees people that he started seeing 15 years ago, and he still sees them on a regular basis. It's telehealth now. 
But, um, you know, they, they like that. They like the predictability of seeing him. They think of him like a, I don't know, a dad. It's a res yeah, and it's a respite away from all of the yuckiness. Interesting. Interesting. So, okay. Terry, I'll share. I probably see between 10 and 15 new patients each month between my, the two places that I work. And we get an ACE score on all of them. And last month, I saw somebody who had an ACE score of zero. And I couldn't remember the last time I'd seen that because everybody has this childhood trauma and, and most of them have significant adult trauma as well. Um, so it's just really unusual to see somebody like that and, and enough that it stood out. I mean, I can remember who it is. Um, but yeah, you know, I think uh, these folks, when you're talking both pain and addiction, um, you know, you, you need to pay attention to that. So, and I didn't realize that younger in my younger life, but you know, now if I'm going to listen to their heart, I ask for permission to, you know, put my hand on their shoulder and put my stethoscope on their chest mm -hmm. because that might've been something that was threatening to them in the past. Um, you know, even just being an adult male, you know, right. might frighten them for me to be in the room with them. So when possible, try to have a woman there, all, even if I'm just talking with somebody, uh, yeah. you know, to offer a little bit of protection. Yeah. Yeah. So, Don, I'm going to ask you because you, I'm sure, are the, as opposed to Martha, are in a position to see the person or the patient prior to being prescribed opioids. How do you handle it when somebody comes to you and they have pain? Um, could be acute, I'm going to say acute pain at this point, but they, they clearly have some pain. You're their physician. And first, you want to assess their risk of addiction. And during that assessment, you discover that they do have some of those risk factors. And so you don't want to go the controlled substance route. How do you go about assessing the patient and then steering them in a different direction for treatment? Yeah, so I'm fortunate in that a lot of times that assessment has been done before I see them. So I know what a lot of their risk factors are. But if you're working in the ER or, you know, even in a primary care office that doesn't have a lot of support personnel, you might not know that. So a lot of it is just, you know, talking to the new patients, it's more difficult than someone you've known. You might know if they have depression, if they have anxiety, all of those things increase their risk. Um, you might know a little bit of their life story. Um, but in reality, what I share with basically all my patients is we know now that for treatment of both acute and chronic pain, the non-opioid treatments are better anyway. They have better outcomes. They reduce pain even more. So I talk to them about opt optimal outcomes. And, you know, it's really interesting, in particular for chronic pain, um, there are some folks that come to see me because they just want opioid medications or they want more opioid medications. And, and maybe they have a, a history of addiction and maybe they have addiction already and they just want me to prescribe some of these for them. Um, but those folks, if that's all they want, then, then they're really pre-contemplative. They're not really ready to listen to anything I say just yet. They just want the medicines. And sometimes those folks get mad at me and, you know, I offer them all the other stuff we have. Um, but for most folks, you know, I can talk, I can show them graphs, I can show them, uh, you know, outcome studies about how these other things work better. And, and, you know, even for acute pain, behavioral health can have a significant role. If people are very anxious about their pain or their injury, you know, I think behavioral health specialists ought to be in the hospital for people before and after surgery, or the ones that come in to the ER with trauma to, to help them learn mindfulness techniques to calm down, to reduce their own adrenaline load or amount of adrenaline and cortisol they have going. So behavioral health can have a big role there, uh, but we don't really make that really a central part. Part of the problem really is in medicine, we still think of pain as this mechanical issue, 
right? There's tissue damage, it sends a signal to our brain, we feel pain, so we need to address the tissue damage. But what we now know is there's all these other factors from their life history, and even from what's going on now in their life, that magnifies the pain. And so if we can address those things as well, they can do better. So back to your question, I do talk to patients about all the other options. There are some that don't want to hear that. Um, and that's difficult. I try to get our behavioral health people involved if that's the case, um, but it can be difficult. Okay. Yeah, I know that all makes sense. Well, the topic today was a really important one, I think, because it gave us insight into who may be at higher risk for addiction. And if we know that, then those on the front line of prescribing can make a real difference if they, if they take the time to evaluate the patient prior to the prescribing. Of course, as you covered, Don, we can also argue that controlled substance prescribing should not be the go-to anyway. And then we don't really even need to discuss addiction risk, right? We can just take it off the table. Right. Let me make one, one kind of comment on that though. Um, for some people with severe physical trauma, they're in a life-threatening uh, accident or injury, opioids are helpful because they do calm people down and they provide that calming effect to help them. And studies have shown that if they have severe trauma, the sooner they get the morphine, the less likely they are to develop PTSD and the but less severe it is. very short term, right? That's Yeah, but, but we're talking about opioids in only three to seven days because studies in burn patients have shown if they get them for longer than seven days, they have more depression, more anxiety, more fear about their injury and their ongoing pain. They develop more chronic pain. So we're talking about short courses. So there are times when they are indicated people need them, but it is the more severe trauma, uh, you know, mostly in the hospitalized patient, not so much in outpatient treatment. Yeah. And I do remember I learned that from you when you came and spoke with um, our group is that there is a time and a place, but it's a little bit few and far between. So I would like to have the two of you on again. And I would like to talk about that um, alternatives and when opioids are appropriate. I want to thank you guys so much for your time, and I hope we see each other again real soon. Thank you. Thank, thank, thank you. you.